0: So, thanks everyone for coming uh, to our meeting, uh, Workers' Liberty meeting on um, industrial unionism and uh, for an industrial union in, uh, industrial union in uh, education. Uh, so, first up, we have uh, Pat Murphy, um, who is on the National Executive of the NEU. Um, and he's going to speak for about 15 minutes and then hopefully uh, we'll be joined by uh, John Maloney, who is the uh, Deputy Assistant General Secretary of the uh, PCS. So over to you Pat and hopefully John will join us. shortly.
1: All right, I'm not uh, I'm not completely sure about 15 minutes because I discovered two hours ago uh, and apologies for this that Tracy's um, not able to be here because Tracy's not well Um which uh, is maybe true of lots of people in education at the minute, are we're not, we're not completely well um, with the stresses and strains of the last week or so. Um, so this is going to be a basic run-through of the case for um, an industrial union, and in particular in education, and a bit about how that pans out in the N.E.U. Um, I mean, for the, I mean by the way when I want to talk about industrial union here not to assume anything I'm talking about a union that organizes in a particular industry or service and then the basis of, the basis of membership is that you work in that industry and service so it's not the same as a general union where there's the plethora of different services that you you know GMB say which you can you, you can join a union uh, to organize in or craft union where you've got to have a very particular skill to be in it. I'm talking about a union organizers across, on the basis that it represents workers in a, in a particular service or industry. And as, uh, obviously we'll talk about education most, today mostly. Um, although if John arrives, he may have things to say about how that pans out in something like the civil service. Um, I mean, at a very basic level, the, the, I think the thinking behind this is that, um, if we could put it this way, unions exist to serve workers. It's not the other way around. You know, workers should not be forced to organize in ways that allow there to be lots of different unions and general secretaries and, and headquarters and, and paid staff. That's not, you know, workers don't exist so that there can be unions. Unions exist in order to represent workers. At a basic level, that's, that's how I'd put it. Um, but that's, and that's because the most effective way for workers to organize is to organize with people who work alongside them in the same buildings, in the same industry, in the same service. Um, Industrial unionism reflects um, a, a politics as well, where you encourage workers to see themselves as a class um, and not as part of a special craft. So, obviously, in the case of education, um, the the details, sometimes slightly boring arguments we have about the kind of union we need to have, actually, ref, actually involve challenging the idea that teachers are very special. And cleaners aren't as special, or TAs aren't a special, or whatever. It involves t- confronting that, uh, c- to call it what it is, prejudice, um, and confronting it with rational arguments, uh, it, which which also convince teachers, for example, that it's in their interest to be in the same organisation as these other workers. Leave aside any any other questions of kind of ethics and all, all and, and all the rest of it. It's in our interest as that because we are the same class. It it, it kind of expresses that. It it, may, it confronts people with that reality um, in a very clear way, and in a way that relates to the day-to-day work that we do. Um, the, our power is greater as an industrial union. Um, those we we've been the people on this call uh, have probably been in either the N.U. or the N.U.T. for very varying degrees of time, but we've been involved in a number of big struggles in the last 10, 15 years. Certainly, in the time I've been involved in, first the N.U.T. And an absolutely repeated motif of those struggles, particularly the difficult parts of those struggles, is what are the NES doing, or what are the GMB doing, or what are the UNIS, What are other workers in our workplace doing? Because they're not all in our union, um, and we've had very big struggles indeed, um, which have fallen apart, not entirely, but largely because of that problem. Um, so, the, so the case for industrial unionism presents a real solution to, to a basic problem workers face at work, Um, it expresses that kind of value that, you know, there's power in the union, but the power of union is in in the unity of its workers. Uh, It it represents solidarity, uh, the collective principle, the strong pulling up the weak, and so on. Um, In education, the NUT, as was, um, which was a union that only recruited teachers, you had to have qualified teacher status to be in the NUT, had long, long had a policy of what they called professional unity that it didn't make any sense for there to be three, if you exclude the leadership unions, three classroom teacher unions, that it, and for, may, often for the very reasons I've just outlined, without the, without the um, support worker element of it, i.e. that it, it weakened us, it divided us, it made struggles difficult, it made, us, made it harder for us to defend our pensions, for example, in 2011, 12, and 13. Um, but it was professional unity. The policy was to look for unity with other teacher unions, um, and it was it was t- 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 up to that limit it was right it didn't make any sense for there to be three different unions competing for members competing for resources uh, making different decisions in in, in terms of industrial s- struggle and so on it didn't make any sense it was right policy to attempt to unify them but it was a but it was craft unionism you can tell that it was it was, a, it was a unionism based on getting the professionals together getting the teachers in the same union so in that to that extent it was fantastically limited um, it, 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 the, the, That policy was a policy on paper, which apart from a couple of short episodes of kind of optimism, didn't really amount to anything until the proposals to merge the ATL and the NUT emerged. Um, I mean, the aim of the policy previously, the the big dream had been to emerge the two massive teaching unions, the NASWT and the NUT. But actually what happened was that the ATL, for reasons that there's no need to go into here, but often reasons of their weakness, um that became a real possibility merging the atl and the nut um now what that's led to is a situation where because i'm not going to go through the merger the mergers happened uh and we supported the merger um but what that what that led to was a situation where the neu is an embryo industrial union only not because anyone's made a political decision that that's a good way to organize not because anybody i want to say anybody here include the left and the right of the NUT. Been, is politically wedded to the principle of industrial union, but because the merger was popular, the amalgamation was popular, it was the right thing to do, and it just so happened that the ATL also admitted support staff. So, the, and, and it also um, didn't make any sense for the new union, although I think there were people in the NUT who would, would have done this if they could have got away with it, it didn't make any sense in the negotiations to insist that the ATL lose all of their support staff members. Now, there was it was never argued out, thought out, written out explicitly what anybody thought of any of this. So this is a supposition, but my supposition is that there are, there are plenty of people who were in the NUT who would happily have seen us, who, who, who expected or even hoped that the ATL support set membership was small, uh, would maybe shrink, um, that it wasn't something we had to, to be too bothered about, that it was a problem to be dealt with on, an, on another day. But without doubt, there wasn't an explicit decision to form an industrial union and therefore none of the actions since then have been the actions of a leadership um, determined to make sure that the union represents all of its members properly. Um, however because of the way these things work, amalgamating a union that decided that it was going to keep the existing membership, the existing membership eligibility of both separate unions, so in other words support staff could join, um, certain things then followed from that that there'd be a support staff conference. That there'd be a support staff. It was agreed early on that there'd be sectoral representatives on the executive, like a post-16 uh, member, for example, independent schools member. So therefore, it was a piece of cake to get a support, support staff executive member. Um, so that certain things followed from the amalgamation, which have pushed the union towards an industrial union or something more like an industrial union. But it's not a conscious decision. And there have been two kind of, there have been at least two barriers to making that a, a conscious decision. One, one is the residual craft unionism ironically given the history of the ATL being seen as quite a conservative union ironically mostly in the NUT really strong residual craft unions including on the on the very sizable left of the NUT now it expressed it expressed itself in a kind of vaguely left wing way as in the previous new labor government and then the Tories had made moves to allow people to teach who weren't qualified teachers who would be cheaper and be less skilled and the the NUT the NUT had prided itself and stayed out of the social partnership agreement in the early part of this century, on the basis of we are the only union you can rely on to say every child must have a qualified teacher. So that commitment, which was broadly supported in the union, became wrapped up in um, negativity about an industrial union. If we allow support staff in, how does that affect our ability to stand up for this principle that you need to be qualified to be a teacher? For the most part, it was a it was a, um, a myth. Uh, either you know um, a kind of maliciously used myth or an honest myth but um, I don't know what I, if John's speaking later what, what how things operate in civil service but the RMT is an all grades union doesn't mean anybody in the RMT can drive a train there are still rules about who can drive a train you need qualifications to drive a train and four people having qualifications to drive a train or a tube, um, tube train it, it, they're not the same thing. You know, you can have workers in the same union, even though they have different... There are lots of things support to staff to do that I'm not qualified to do and, would, you know, shouldn't be allowed to do. Um, they're just not the same thing. But it became wrapped up in... Uh, it became a kind of excuse for, uh, in some cases, just opposing um, the amalgamation. And, and as I say, in the case of... Just to, apologies for people who don't know the union inside out, but, um, the, you know, the, mo- the rank-and-file organisation of the union that we've been active in, the Education Solidarity Network, has been... Affiliated to by the City of Leicester NUT, who are broadly speaking pretty pretty left wing branch of the union, very militant on pensions, etc., et They they stood out as in opposition to the amalgamation, the merger, on the principle that it, it got in it got in the way of only its qualified teachers who uh, teach a class. They wanted a teacher only union, you know. That that was the, the the view of that branch. So this is not this craft unionism is not something unique to the right of, of the union. It's, it's it's it permeates the union. Well, it permeated the union. I think it's. Just facts on the ground are, are weakly now, but it permeates you. The other, the other so that's one barrier, uh, and it's still there. The other barrier is, a, is and, it, and this is very much still there, is a kind of bureaucratic uh, conservatism around relations with other unions. It's like we, everyone, I think, in the union who's had any discussion about recruiting support staff in any way whatsoever um, will have come across the argument that we'll, we'll upset Unison, we'll upset the GMB. We have to be careful about our relationships with these other unions. You know, not to be not to be completely dismissive in the sense that, who with all that we've got to do, we can do without rouse with other unions, especially at a local level where we work alongside them. And to that extent, let's not be dismissive. However, this is just looking at things all the wrong way around. You know, what form of organisation makes workers in schools and colleges and education settings more powerful? That's the issue. That's the issue. If there are issues around how you behaved, uh, the relationships with Unison, relationships with GMB. Are they more militant or less militant in a particular school? Do they have more members? If there are issues around that, they're details. They're sometimes not unimportant details, but they're details. But the starting point for looking into that detail is what is the most effective way of organizing works in this particular service? And it's for them all to be in the same, in the same union. So that's the you know, two barriers. And one, one product of that barrier, that bureaucratic conservatism barrier, is that we, we still exist in a union has has a, a formal agreement brokered through the TUC, um, which... We've signed up to, as a union, which, which concedes uh, our right to negotiate and bargain for our support staff members. It not only concedes that we don't have that right, it agrees not to seek it. You know, we will not seek that right. Worse than that, and actually quite ludicrously because this, this can't work, it commits not to actively recruit uh, support staff. Um, and I mean, there's lots of you can, you can joke around with that one because you get phone calls to union officers, I want to join the union, what are you, TA? You don't then say, I'm sorry, that's, you know. Or do you say it wasn't active because they phoned you first? I mean, you know, it's, it's a nonsense and we are recruiting support staff. But nevertheless, there is a formal agreement that makes that more difficult. Or in the case of, say, local officers who don't want to recruit support staff, allows them not to do it. it potentially allows them to turn people away, um, which, is, which is a nonsense. Um, we've been spending a lot of time since before and since the amalgamation arguing that that needs to go. We've, put, we've been central to putting motions to conference in the last couple of years trying to shift that and getting closer and closer to winning it. There are some things I would say that are, that are shifting this, um, shifting this argument. i are going to continue to shift it very much in our direction. Um, one is that the support staff executive member who sadly isn't here um, is Tracy. The first support staff executive member elected was an ex-ATL member, i.e. before the amalgamation, which is kind of understandable because they were the only people who had support staff members. But, uh, you know, perfectly nice person but very conservative very bureaucratic wasn't making any kind of issue whatsoever of this tuc agreement you know just wanted to get better cpd for support staff and that kind of stuff that's not what tracy is tracy's stood on a platform that we should have the negotiating rights that we should be an industrial union that there's no second class citizens in the union that's a difference that's an important difference and i think you can see from activity in the union meetings in the union social media activity and so on that the the tracy's played a part in shifting that debate quite sharply and it's not going to shift back you know it's only it's only going to move in one direction and that is good the other thing that's made with all due respect to tracy an even bigger difference is the membership surge in support staff that was going on anyway i don't have i no longer have kind of solid figures of percentages but um you would have seen probably the massive increases in the last well during the whole coronavirus crisis but particularly in the last since sunday since johnson's stupid fucking announcement um, the growth in any new membership which was you know 1,400 in 12 hours after a speech then 2,600 by Tuesday for nearly 5,000 by Thursday I'm hearing I heard this morning it's like 10,000 now the last time I heard and I didn't hear about the 10,000 it was 50-50 support staff and teachers uh, which is one level astonishing uh, at another level not because teacher density in two is very very high so there's not a lot more teachers to recruit you could recruit people from the NAS um, but their stance, their stance on this has probably not been too bad, uh, although their local activity and support members has probably been in a, not, in, not in the same league as, as the NEU. Um, but nevertheless, it, so it, it, it's in some ways it's not astonishing because its support staff were under-organized. Um, and that's another factor to this, another aspect of this argument, by the way, in terms of relations with Unison and GMB and why that's the wrong way of looking at it. Support staff density is around 30, 35% across the country. right? most support staff are not in a union 90 odd percent of teachers are in a union so the idea that we should put a priority we should we should put as a higher priority not setting other unions above actually recruiting and organizing support staff into a union is a nonsense from any point of view um but you know that's that's just another issue that shouldn't be shouldn't be forgotten um so just in in summing up really um the NEU will be an industrial union. I mean, it, it is in, on paper anyway, but the NEU will be an industrial union. The direction of travel is undoubtedly in our direction. It's a matter of whether we stumble into it accidentally and grudgingly and don't do it properly, or whether we consciously have it as a project as a union, to do it properly, to represent these workers properly, to have no second-class citizens in the union, and to, and, and to gear ourselves up from, from the nitty-gritty stuff of knowing what the conditions of service are and representing them to the higher stuff of negotiating and represent, representing them properly at the national level. I mean, as somebody who does local union work, I don't know the condition of service of support staff well enough. Um, and, uh, I'm, and I'm learning them, but I'm not being helped by the union particularly. You know, it's a very, it's a low order priority. So that, that minuscule level, not min- that's I don't mean it at that kind of practical level, it's important, but also at the level of um, we don't negotiate their pay. We don't put pay claims in for them. If we have a big pay strike um, in the next couple of years, as things stand, it wouldn't involve our support staff members, of which if these figures are right in the last week, of which there are massively increased numbers. Um, in fact, I'll just finish with this. One of, the, um, one of the more kind of technical arguments sometimes used by people who are resi- have resisted our motion is not, very few people will say, I'm not for it at some point. They'll say, this is not the time, right? Which is a standard kind of conservative, small C argument in the union. It's never it's for a strike. Or so. It's not the time, Another time. Um, but the time, what they define as what will be the time is when we get a certain percentage of support staff in membership. Now, we've got to be, we must be close to that now. We must be close to that now. I'd be, it's, it's very hard to get figures about these things because unions declare their overall membership to the certification officer, but they don't, they don't necessarily declare categories of workers. But it must be the case that we've got more members than Unite in schools because Unite's membership is tiny in schools, but they're recognised for support staff. Um, I, I, I'd be surprised if we didn't now have more than that or as many as that. So it doesn't make any sense even from that point of view. But anyway, that's that, that's a detail. The, the, the phrasing point is the starting point, which is this is the most effective way for workers to organize. That's our principle. That's the thing that matters more than anything else. Everything else is a detail.
0: Uh, thank you, Patrick. Um, so John Maloney has uh, not shown up uh, at this point, um, but very kindly uh, Daniel Randall, who is a rep on the London Underground uh, has volunteered uh, his services to uh, talk a bit about industrial unionism. So, uh, take it away, Daniel.
2: Yeah, thanks. I um, what I actually did is I um, cut John Maloney's Wi-Fi router so he wouldn't be able to attend uh, just to muscle in myself. So, um, it's good to see the plan's been effective. I think um, uh. So yeah, uh, like uh, Christy said, I'm I'm Daniel, I'm a railway worker and RMT rep. Um, So have some kind of personal experience with this issue and, you know, I've done some kind of thinking about it. Um, I think if John Maloney was here, um, some of the things he might um, flag up, which is worth thinking about in terms of the civil service, is that um, the PCS, which is the the Public and Commercial Services Union, which comrades will probably know that, that John's the Assistant General Secretary of, has made a turn, um, I mean, particularly under his, um, kind of since his his, his uh, tenure began, uh, but also somewhat prior to that, towards trying to organise in m- more of an industrial unionist type way in, in the civil service. And what, what that's predominantly meant, and this is a particular aspect we might discuss, is organising outsourced as well as directly employed workers. Um, I know that is an issue in some schools where... Um, services like cleaning or catering or maybe maintenance even might, might be outsourced. Um, but um, that's the kind of particular dynamic in the civil service. So it isn't so much about organizing workers of different grades employed by the same employer. It's actually about organizing people who work in the same building and are part of the kind of overall workforce, but are actually employed by different employers. And that's a kind of particular challenge, I think for, Um, working out what contemporary industrial unionism looks like. And that's something I'll talk about in more detail when I talk about my own experience um, in the RMT and of working on the railway. So maybe just to sort of wrap up on on the PCS stuff and some of the things John might have covered, I'd I'd encourage comrades to, um, well, read his weekly column in Solidarity, the the Works Liberty newspaper that often touches on this. Um, There's some particular collaboration plans now between the PCS And the United Voices of the World, which people might know is a small, uh, non-TUC-affiliated kind of sort of calls itself a trade union. It's more of a sort of radical workers' centre, really. Um, And they've got some membership in the Ministry of Justice, outsourced cleaners in the Ministry of Justice. And the PCS is now planning some collaboration and joint campaigning with them. And I think there's been some discussion about sort of formal reciprocal arrangements so that's something else we might look at in terms of the issues Patrick raised about relationships with other unions, um, in situations where there is another union organising a particular grade or or a section of outsourced workers in the workplace. Um, what might be, um, what what might, be, might 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 the possible approaches be that aren't just um, well they organise those workers we'll leave them alone, which is the sort of um, attitude of a section of the NEU bureaucracy that Patrick rightly criticised, but. Also, if, you, if you're not able to just persuade uh, or for whatever reason don't want to, it's not strategic to persuade a whole section of mem- membership to just leave one union and join the other, are there kind of local models of um, collaboration that might evolve in the uh, direction of industrial unionism and might put some pressure on the bureaucracies of both unions? Um, okay, so that was the um, uh, sort of John Maloney stuff. So... Um, from my own experience, so Patrick mentioned the RMT as a um, potential model for, for, all, for all grades unionism, and it certainly is in some ways, and the its kind of provenance and the unions from which it's descended certainly were industrial unions. That's, that's definitely true. And there are many aspects in which the RMT is probably closer to the model of industrial unionism that Workers' Liberty would advocate as a sort of organisational aspiration um but not that close um so i'm gonna talk about some of the kind of good bits and bad bits and then um maybe just conclude with some general points so um anyone who works in the railway or transport industry can join the RMT so that means that on London Underground where I work um we've got members who are train drivers, we've got members who are station staff, which is what I do, uh, signal workers, track engineers office and admin staff, plus lots and lots of outsourced workers. Um, Cleaning is outsourced on London Underground, as are many other services. And we've got bases of membership amongst those workers too. And just the mere fact of having membership across all these different grades and functions, across all these different employers, it does inculcate more of a sense of a kind of collective identity of a group of workers as part of um, one workforce with common interests uh, that we can pursue uh, collectively in some sense. And um, that's, I, I think s- some of that is sort of sharpened by the fact that in our industry, we've got a really sort of classical craft union um, to, to kind of compete with, which is, which is left, uh, the rather um, wonderfully named uh, the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, uh, which gives you some sense of uh, like where that union kind of comes from. You know, it's, its name derives from a sort of uh, very different bit of industrial history. And you can only join ASLEF if you uh, are a train driver, basically. They have, they have some peripheral membership around that, people who work on trains in other capacities, but, but basically it's a train driver's union. And their perspective is very much that train drivers have specific interests. Um, so it kind of mirrors in many ways the sort of professional association culture that um, Patrick talked about in his presentation um, and that's the basis of their organisation. And, and they're very exp- aslev is very explicit that having other workers in the same organisation kind of dilutes the ability to um, pursue the particular and special and sectional interests of train drivers. So kind of ha- having that very chemically pure model of craft unionism on the job and around and kind of in the air supply, I think um, people can see, you know, people can do a sort of direct compare and contrast um, and I think that's 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 quite powerful. Um, but there are some big limitations with the RMT, and i I'm, I'm going to talk about some of them before, before wrapping up on some general points and I think what they come down to really is the is is a point that Patrick made, which is that industrial unionism is not just a it's not just a, a about a type of organizational structure it's about a sort of political approach to trade unionism and the method and the culture um, so While the RMT has the sort of structures in the abstract that could um, enable it to be an industrial union, it doesn't always kind of activate those structures, if you like, and in fact has kind of amended those structures in such a way as to move it further away from being an industrial union. So, for example, on London Underground, um, uh, all of our branches are what are called general grades branches which means that so my brand I I work on the Bakerloo line I work on stations on the Bakerloo line my branch is the Bakerloo branch so um, my branch uh, organizes and is attended by um, anyone who works on the Bakerloo line in any capacity so drivers station staff outsourced cleaners um, revenue inspectors Um, if you work on the Bakerloo line whether you're employed by London Underground or you're outsourced whatever your job is you can you're in our branch and you could uh, and you attend our branch meetings except if you're a, a train maintainer like fleet engineer working on Bakerloo working in the Bakerloo line fleet depot on the train stock because in that case you'll be in the London Underground fleet branch of the RMT. So the RMT's created two branches it's relatively recent innovation well, i think about 25 years but in span of labor history relatively recent innovation um created these uh, two Sectional branches, so we've got a fleet branch and an engineering branch, um, which means that fleet and engineering workers are not. Uh, I mean, it's it's, it's particularly a problematic in the case of um, the fleet workers because they are, you know, they, they are attached to a depot that's on a particular line. They're not interacting with the other workers who work on that line. They're not interact in in the union within the union. I mean, they're not interacting with the other workers who work on that line. They're not interacting with Bayclu line station staff or baker Loot line drivers. They're just in their own branch with other train maintainers from other fleet depots across uh, the underground. And that has led to a very sectional culture developing. And in fact, I would go as far as to say that our fleet branch and our engineering branch basically function like two miniature craft unions inside the RMT. Um, and I think what that tells you there is that just having a overarching common organization that everyone can join isn't enough. You need to have a internal organizational structure and a culture um, that um pushes industrial unionist kind of ideas, so um being told to wrap up, so I will finish by making some um, sort of general points um, okay, so like historically, the endeavor of industrial unionism was about i mean i don't particularly like one of the phrases Patrick used, which is about the strong helping the weak um but um you know, that, that, is un- that has undeniably been part of the idea, right? It's about workers who have perhaps a greater degree of industrial leverage using that power because they're in a common or- organisation with workers who might have less industrial leverage to fight for better conditions for, for everyone. And that that is part of the kind of historical endeavour of industrial unionism. Um, one of the things that is a profound impediment to that now is the extremely restrictive legal arrangement, which means that... Um, you can, you can only have a legitimate legal official trade dispute with your own employer. So on London Underground, I'm not able to take action on behalf of or in support of or in solidarity with outsourced cleaning workers, even though they work alongside me on this. They're as much part of the core, permanent, everyday station workforce as I am. They, they, they're, in, they're my immediate workmates. I work alongside them every shift, but they're employed by an outsourced contractor. I'm employed by London Underground if and when they go on strike, their dispute is with ABM, the cleaning contractor. If and when I go on strike, my dispute is with London Underground. And we are legally inhibited from take, directly taking action in support of each other. So one thing I was going to suggest for the discussion is that I, I think the, the question of the anti-union laws and fighting for the abolition of the anti-union laws is absolutely integrally bound up with um, the fight for industrial unionism in the labour movement because that legislative regime is one of... The key impediments really to industrial unionist kind of practice um that's not to give um you know shit sectional bureaucrats a kind of get out jail free card and i wouldn't want to suggest that you know okay there's not we can't have industrial unionism until we get rid of the anti-union laws kind of manana industrial unionism but, but i think that's that that is a real factor uh, that we might want to talk about so um I think I will leave it there, except to say this, um, just, which is just one final sentence to throw into the discussion. Um, I think the other sector or industry where the question of industrial unionism is going to be very sharply posed, needs to be very sharply posed, is in higher education, where there are very, very big attacks coming from the bosses, and where you have arguably an even worse situation than you do in the, se- the bits of the education sector that, that NEU organises in. I mean, the UCU is a craft union, basically. The University College Union is a craft union um, that organises a a quite narrow and tends to be dominated, a quite narrow section of the university workforce, or or not narrow numerically, but a particular section of the university workforce, and then within the union tends to be dominated by the most privileged layers of that particular section. And often the poorer paid workers, but who in a university context actually have some of the most the the biggest industrial power you know, maintenance staff, IT staff, systems administrators, people like that, they're in Unite or Unison or the GMB Um, and attempting to resist cuts in the HE sector on the basis of these four unions organising different bits of the campus workforce is just the recipe for defeat so um, that's another industry where I think this question needs to be sort of pursued uh, very immediately I'll leave it there, thanks
1: Mark's experience um, of how industrial unionism was built in his own workplace reflects uh, how, me- how support staff membership grew before this, before this crisis, where it's, it's now growing because of a kind of general level of anxiety and fear and desire to have an pr- effective union. And for all, its, for all its weaknesses, it's visibly the most effective school union is in, in this crisis is the NEU. So, so, so that's what that's about. But prior to that, when there was no particular drive to organise support workers, uh, the pattern that I kind of noticed on the executive was that the, the little splurges of support staff growth were where there was a struggle in a school. Was a, there was a battle. It was an industrial struggle of some kind. And sometimes it was anecdotally you picked up in my region, for example, that, you know, all the support staff members had joined the union in a particular school, but that's because there was a dispute, you know. Maybe a strike, but maybe, maybe a collective grievance against a bullying head or an academy dispute or something of that kind. Um, so... I think that it, it industrial unionism is built through struggle. If it's not built from the top by the leadership, it's not gonna you know, it'll be built through struggle. Um I, I, you know, on a whole spectrum from, from what Mark's done of setting out to do, setting out to involve support workers whenever there's an issue in school and finding issues would affect them as well, or in a particular battle where support staff gravitate towards whoever's showing some kind of lead or fighting. But that in itself is instructive. I mean, that kind of makes the point without any theory or historical background it kind of makes the point of why this is the effective way to organize because you know workers workers see it when there's an issue. Um, the second thing I wanted to come back on a little bit is or at least it's provoked by something some of the things that were said is about the left and industrial unionism. Um, I mean at first I was kind of puzzled by this what why the gap why the reticence why so few people why so few because I mean, it's, it's hard to exaggerate this because it wasn't just, and apologies for people who aren't as familiar with the uh, ins and outs of the NEU, but the sort of the NEU left, you know, the Socialist Teachers Alliance, uh, CDFU, people like that, none of them really uh, energetically pursued this line and some of them resisted. It. But inside the ESN, the Educational Solidarity Network, which I'll come back to, again, you know, the Socialist Party, who we've worked really closely with around, around issues in the union recently, again, no no appetite to to make an issue of it at best you might get a a grudging agreement but which but why why were we pushing it you know and you kind of think what what's going on here because this is not imperialism or israel palestine or you know this is not a contentious this is not a hugely contentious issue in marxist history like unions industrial unionism it's kind of one of the basic dividing lines it's not something you'd expect to have huge rounds about and actually, in some ways, we haven't had user rights. We just had this reticence, this, this lack of appetite for picking it up. Now, to some extent, that, is, that, at some extent, that tells you a story about how the left now relate to trade unions, which is that they, um, they relate to them. as First of all, there's a transa- what I would call a transactional relationship. You, know? you send a speaker to my stand-up to racism event and give me several thousand pounds to run it. I won't cause too much fuss to you as a, le- as a leadership of my union. And, and that extends not just to, you know, Kevin Courtney's not bad. He's making a bit of a fight of this. That extends to Dave Prentice because Unison have got money too, you know. So we don't really want to be upsetting them, you know, or the GMB or whatever. Because all of these organizations are places where you can get an awful lot of dosh to promote stuff that you haven't got the organizational or kind of sinews to organize really huge events yourself. So there's a kind of transactional relationship between large parts of the left. I mean, I picked an event, though, that targets s 2 people. but this is true of, you know, Alex Kenny in East London, or, you know, there are people running big events way beyond what the capacity they can organize themselves because they've got funding and resources put into them by huge organizations of the labor movement who they don't want to fall out with, you know? So not falling out with a unison G, but I can kind of brush that aside a bit like I did in the lead-off. But this is, because I don't care about this transactional relationship, but... But if you do, then that's not a small matter for you to, because it does mean a row. You're going to have to have a row about it, you know, because these people are going to have to go to the TUC, you know, once a month or so on and get a bit of an ear bashing from Prentice or whatever. And that's not comfortable for them. So you will have to force them to do it. And they don't want to do that. So that's one aspect, of that transactional relationship. But the other aspect is that unions, a lot of the left relate to unions and have done for years now as substitute political parties. So... They're not thinking of them as what's the most effective way for them to organize industries. I'm thinking of, you know, can I, have I got all my policies through my union conference? And, um, is there any chance they might back some candidates? We stand in elections if we do, or, you know, it, it's, it's, it's less an industrial organization, or at least that's not the most important thing about it. It's, it's kind of where I do my politics. You know, the union is where lots of people that have to do their politics. And there's a whole set of problems around that, that, you know, I won't go into, but I mean, I, to put it this way, I think that's also a reflection of the failure of much of the far left to work out how it's going to deal with the political wing of the labour movement, uh, either by intervening in it or having some kind of alternative, whatever it is. So rather than confront that, which is a long, patient, difficult piece of work, you kind of do your politics through your union. So there's a lot of that stuff going on, um, I think, to, uh, to explain the kind of weird silence or reticence of gap in the activity of the far left around industrial unionism because it, the, the principle in itself is not that contentious and it's it's a logic, it's industrial logic. It's, it's kind of, you know, it is compelling industrial logic, which is why it's going to happen. And just the last thing, is, so so so, in a sense, what we're doing here and what we're going to have to do um, is just assert what trade unions are for socialists, what they mean, what, what the job is, you know. So it's as simple as that. On workplace organisation, I, I basically agree with a lot of what... Um, Tyrone said about and any team in every school would be better slogan than any new rep mind you having you know and any a rep in every school would be a phenomenal achievement right now, but an any team in every but I mean it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Why is there not a rep in every school? Because because what Tyrone said, which is I don't want to be the athlete of one, you know, I don't want to be the one that's that's picked out and bullied. Um, but there's a there's a just a final thing here but which which Tyrone touched on. The the ESN, the Educational sorry Network, which is the best of the union in a way is all over the place. I mean, you could, I could do 10 minutes on that, but just, it's all over the place on this particular aspect, which is, um, I, I think, one of the underlying problems of the ASM, which was built into it when it was set up as the local association's national action network, is there's an immense reliance on the nas- on calling on the national union to do stuff, particularly to, to call national action, um, which obviously has its place and absolutely had its place during the, when it was, I mean, it's, it's born out of the way it was set up, which was the pension strike was called off and the pensions dispute could not be won other than by a return to national action. So it's completely, it's completely logical how, how we got into this. But it's, it's embedded in that organisation, a focus, a relentless kind of focus on national action. What is the National Union doing? Why isn't it calling a ballot on X, Y, Z? Um, and to some, to some extent, that's a, that, that, I don't want, I'm generalising a bit here, but to some extent, that then becomes a kind of substitute for what are you doing in your branch? How is your branch organised? Um, there is that bit where the union is also you, you know, and there's a there's a little bit of excuse making, you know. We would have done this, but the union didn't call it, or the union didn't send me the right material, or or whatever it is. So again, slightly sweeping, but I think there is an issue in the one of the one of the ways in which the ESN is all over the place, to use Tyrone's phrase, is um, not getting a not not um, getting a proper link between the, the calling on the national union to do things or be or behave in a certain way. And, and actually building the local organisation of the union into a kind of militant force too. Um,
0: I've not got any more indications, so I, I'm, I think I'm going to take uh, take Daniel back uh, if he would like to speak for moment.
2: Sure, okay. Um, well, I was, um, there were some things I was going to c- come back on anyway. Um, I'll try and maybe sketch out some responses to... Uh, Crowley's contribution just there because there was a lot in that um I think the point about um people sometimes having a quite individualistic or sort of passive conception of their relationship to the union is um very important um and I think that the the prevalence of that idea is both a uh, a sort of existing kind of symbiosis with the fact that um you know, look, we're, we're living through a historically low ebb of struggle, right? Like if you're basically under 40 years old in Britain, you've never really seen the labour movement um, move as a kind of visible social actor um, in the way that it did, you know, most recently in British history in the miners' strike and then before that in the, the, the waves of big struggles through the, the 70s and late 60s. So if you're, you know, if you're, so as I say, if you're, you're under 40, you've never seen that. So the kind of Historical perspective that a group like Workers' Liberty has, which is that social, you know, the, the necessary agent of systemic change is organised labour um, taking sort of revolutionary direct action, just seems like completely fantastical. Um, so it's it's not necessarily that surprising that people would think of the union in think of joining a union basically in the same way that they would think of taking out an insurance policy. Um, and obviously the fact, the fact of a low ebb of struggle can't be overcome at will. What can be overcome at will is the ways in which we, as union activists ourselves, explain the union to the people in the workplace around us. So from my own experience, I mean, so RMT is thought of, most comrades will probably know, RMT is thought of as being more militant, more kind of radical um, perhaps a more powerful union than, than some others. I mean, m- most of that is kind of um, smoke and mirrors, to be honest. Not all of it, not all of it. We, in some ways, we do have a sort of relatively more militant culture than other unions, but a lot of it is sort of, is sort of smoke and mirrors. And um, there are lots and lots and lots of RMT reps who I work with, you know, g- good reps, very, very um, diligent advocates who explain... You know, when they go out and do recruitment, they will explain the union as it's like an insurance policy for your job. You know, that's why you should join the union. It's that it'll, it'll protect you. Something if you get in trouble, if something goes wrong, if you you know, the union will be there to protect you. And it's 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 spoken about in those terms. And I think that's such. I mean, it's 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 well meant. You know what I mean? You know, they're not. Um, but it's it's such a really I I would use the word damaging um, kind of way to uh, promote the idea of what the endeavor of trade unionism is because it trains people into this uh, transactional, to use Pat's word, relationship with the union. It trains people into a service provision relationship with the union. It trains people to think, okay, the union is this external body that will protect me if I get in trouble, that I'm paying to render me this service and then, if you know, if, you, if something does happen, if there's some job cuts or something, and the union isn't able to protect you, um, so, you know, it's an, in, inevitably a, a kind of incredibly demoralising experience. And I think actually, there's um, a lot to be. It's one of my sort of favourite like historical periods to bang on about. There's there's a, there's a lot to be learnt on this issue from how unions conceived of themselves in the period of new unionism, which people don't know was a period of really radical sort of recomposition of the labour movement um, in the late 19th century where this, this the question we're discussing today, industrial unionism versus craft unionism, that was part of the sort of fault lines in that period. And many of the new industrial unions that emerged wrote into their constitutions um, versions of the principle no benefit but strike benefit. So lots of the new, the new unions of that period had a constitutional rule that they would not provide any service, no service, no benefit, like nothing. The the only purpose of the union was to be an instrument to facilitate collective direct action. Um, Now, you know, I'm not suggesting we can make that a kind of operating principle immediately in the sense of like stripping back all the sort of service provision type stuff that, that unions do, some of which is kind of important and worthwhile. But for me, I think there's something really valuable in that spirit. The idea that the, fundamentally what the union is, it's a tool. It's, a, it's, a, it's an instrument for making, for struggle. It's an instrument for winning change in the workplace. And that's how it should be promoted. That's how it should be built. That's, how we should, that's the base on which we should recruit people to it. No, it's, no, it's not about, do you want to pay this external body some money to render you a service? It's, do you want to win change in your workplace? Well, here's a tool for doing that. Now, obviously, that requires some pretty fundamental, transformational changes within unions themselves, um, because most unions are not really adequate tools for, for, for doing that at the moment. Which brings me on to some of the final points I wanted to make about building an industrial unionist culture. And I think a few comrades have have touched on this, and you know, it might seem a bit um, disorienting to go from kind of big, like macro level perspective stuff, right down to very nuts and bolts, like elementary, how do you run a meeting type stuff. But I think. This this stuff is important. So I think Tyrone and others mentioned, like, okay, well, what does the union meeting actually look like, and who's there, and whose issues are discussed? This is something we can we have to confront like all the time in RMT. So, you know, I'm not trying to like blow my own trumpet here. This is not a, a kind of sole um, achievement, but my, my, myself and a number of other reps and activists in my branch have undertaken a very conscious effort over a number of years to, to transform the culture of our branch meetings which historically were pr- pretty driver dominated firstly so even though we're a kind of all grades industrial union there is one particular grade that has tended to dominate so you turn up to a Bay- rmt bakerloo line meeting mostly it would be drivers in attendance and most of the discussion would be about drivers issues and talked about in a very kind of sectional way and we had to like kind of shake some people by the lapels really and say like look you have to <laughs> you can't you know we can't have this culture it's not sustainable it's exclusive and it means we're not building the union as powerfully as we could if it if we had a different culture so we we undertook a number of sort of measures some formal some less formal to just ensure that branch meetings were places where outsourced cleaners could come and station staff could come and people from kind of different parts of the job could come and um as an absolute minimum, the thing we kind of aspire to give people out, out of coming to a branch meeting is that they're able to take some bit of knowledge back to their own immediate workmates that, that, that helps them kind of build power or, or, or potentially build power. Um, so things like that are essential, you know, like just having everyone in the same meeting or just having everyone able to come to the same meeting, isn't enough. You have to undertake a conscious effort to build the culture of that meeting on, on, on a particular basis. And that's what the job of people like Workers' Liberty and other, you know, socialists on, on our broad wavelength in the Labour movement is. It's, it's, to, it's, to, it's to build that culture and at, at, at that very kind of micro workplace level and then to fight for that culture, to fight, to, to engage in transformational struggle within unions, doing stuff like intervening in conference like Dan talked about, to fight for that culture to become the dominant culture across the whole movement. Um, if comrades like to uh, get their politics or some of their information in a podcast form, um, I, I co-host a podcast about Labour history and we have, it's called Labour Days, and we did an episode a couple of years ago about industrial unionism and it features an interview with an NEU activist and it's around the time of or shortly after the merger and it takes up a lot of these questions, it situates it in a sort of historical context and talks about the, the kind of historical conflict between industrial unionist and craft unionist models in the British labour movement so people might be interested to listen to that I will post the link in the chat <laughs>